0: This week in the Lectures in History podcast, a discussion about slavery in the Northern Colonies. University of South Carolina professor Nicole Maskeel teaches a class on the early development of slavery in the Northern American Colonies. Professor Maskeel also discusses the relationship between American religion and slavery in both the North and South. The University of South Carolina is located in Columbia, South Carolina. Before we get to this week's episode, we want to take a minute to ask for your help. Your financial support will ensure that C-SPAN can continue to produce podcasts that inform you about national politics, introduce you to the latest nonfiction books, and provide valuable historical context to today's news. Make a donation today and be a part of C-SPAN's future. Visit c-span.org slash donate. Well, welcome everyone today. Um, Today I wanted to start with a story that is near and dear to my heart. Some of you may already know the story or have heard the story. Um, But today we're going to be talking about an unexpected slavery. And unlike the other weeks, this week we're going to be talking about the the part of history that I do my research in. Um, And I wanted to start with the story that started me in history, because I did not want to be a historian (laughs) when I was where you were. I was interested in doing international relations or anything else. But I had to take a class um, in order to kind of fill my requirements. We all know how that goes. And so I chose a class, Material Culture in Early America. And I thought it would be an interesting class. But when I got there, I realized that the final paper was on an object. And it was 40 pages on an object. And I thought, oh, yes, I'm about to fail this class. <laughs> I really shouldn't have done this. But I stuck by, and I found my object. And the object I found was a tombstone, a grave a grave marker for a a young girl, she would have been considered a teenager, Um, and um, she was named Cicely. And I got really curious about this person, right? Like, why did she have this marker? I mean, markers are expensive. If, If anyone knows anything about, even today, you know, trying to get a tombstone is not an easy feat. And so this is something that really stayed with me really got me kind of wondering, and it's what pulled me into history. And so I wanted to share the marker with you. I know I've talked to you about kind of the story in the past when we first um, met, but I wanted to show you the marker just to show you uh, what evidence um, in, in history can do to kind of change your perspective, right? And, and, th- and make, it, make things uh, a little bit different because this marker wasn't you know, in a, in a cemetery in Charleston, <laughs> South Carolina or um, somewhere in Virginia. No, this marker was across uh, the, um, from the main kind of Harvard Yard uh, in a small cemetery known as uh, Old Cambridge Burial Ground. And I was completely blown away to find out that there had been slavery in the North. This is not something that I knew about, I'd even heard about before. And so I knew, wow, this is a really unique thing. There must be a lot of things written about it. Well, there wasn't. And I suppose that was good for me for the future because I was able to be the one to write for it, or write about it. But today we're going to be looking at slavery in this unexpected place, and how on earth did we get um, did, did, did enslavement occur in the northern colonies, what we consider to be the northern colonies? Okay. So we want to start at the beginning and the beginning is a, 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 a moment that we've talked about before, right? The entwining of uh, indigenous uh, slavery. We talked about that when we looked at the history of the, um, the Indian slave trade, right? The Tuscarora War. But much like in that instance, in this instance, there was an entwining between the moment of African and Native enslavement. Now, the first reference to African slavery, in, um, in at least in Massachusetts, uh, actually, I'm sorry, in New England, uh, was in reference to the Pequot War in 1637. So really early in the 17th century, you're seeing the first reference to this entwining. And this war um, uh, was, about, was, was um, centered around the Pequot Indians in Connecticut, and they'd been encroached um, by European settlements that were coming into the region and they struck back, right? They struck back. And they struck back, back at a town called Weatherfield, Connecticut. Um, a few months after that, the Massachusetts and Connecticut militias kind of joined forces in order to um, retaliate. And uh, the, retaliate, the retaliation really came through to the village of Mystic, Connecticut. And it was a slaughter. After this kind of ambush in Mystic, Connecticut, um, the women and children were enslaved in New England. So you get um, refugees right, from, this, from, this, from what happened in, in, in Mystic um, being kind of fanned out as enslaved people across New England. But the men and boys who were considered to be uh, threatening, right, if they were to stay in the region, they might be able to amass and kind of regroup and attack. Again, they were actually traded down to the Caribbean down to, um, to the, um, into the slave markets of the Caribbean. And they were actually put on a ship. The name of the ship was the ship Desire. And they were sent down a ship that had been built in New England. It was built with New England timber. And this ship was sent down to the Caribbean. And they were sold, these, um, the, the, the men and boys were sold, in exchange for African enslaved people, right? Um, And so those people would then go on the ship, Desire, and come back up to Massachusetts. And this was a very important moment in history because this was the first time that enslaved African people were sold in New England. And... This was in 1638. So remember we talked about kind of all of these dates, right, 1619, um, uh, 1627 with New York, and now 1638 here with The Desire. Um, Now, this becomes the policy. This becomes something that people are looking to do. They start to see how this is a way to both dispossess indigenous people of their, um, of their homelands, right, and also make some money um, and, and, and be kind of a lasting way to, to claim the land. And so I want to talk a little bit about how they did this, right? So this is an idea that people start to think, that, that, that the European colonists start to think is a good policy, and so they decide to, to start doing this in subsequent wars. In fact, in sorry, in 1646 and 1946, this was long over, thank goodness. But in 1646, it was just beginning. It becomes the official policy in New England, and in fact, Massachusetts, Massachusetts, not South Carolina, not North Carolina, not you know Virginia. Massachusetts was the first colony to set up the first legal precedent around slavery in the North, uh, in, in the English North American. Colonies, And that precedent was ad- adopted in a document known as the Body of Liberties in 1641. And this Body of Liberties established the legality of slavery. Um, and the way that they established this legality of slavery was for those people, quote, taken in just wars or those um, and such strangers as do willingly sell themselves or are sold to us. Now remember when we looked at the laws, the early laws in um, Virginia, that you, you have this kind of language that isn't as defined, right? So you can see that they're trying to keep some flexibility in case they need to change um, how they're going to be doing this. Now, when two Massachusetts slave merchants joined with London slave raiders in a massacre of an African village in 1645, the colonial government um, registered its indignation. They were like, this is man-stealing. So you can still see there's some debate as to um, the morality of what is happening. Um, And this, of course, coming down from a religious government right we talked about this is a theocracy and they said these people were were guilty of the biblical crime of man-stealing. It didn't help that this also happened on a Sunday, on the on what they uh, considered to be the Sabbath. So this um, this you can see a little bit of kind of pushback. But besides this kind of legal moment when they were uh, accused of man-stealing, um, this was not something that became uh, a problem as the as the decades went on. And so. We're talking about New England. We're talking about Massachusetts. And of course, what's the first thing that you think about when we're, you know, the first thing that you associate with Massachusetts in the 17th century? Any ideas? Yes. The Puritans, right? Any events around the Puritans? Yes. The St. Right. Salem, right? The Salem witch trials. If you've ever seen anything on kind of popular shows, there's so many shows now about Salem, um, some more historically accurate than others, but usually it involves what happened in Salem, which of course a lot of people were executed, but a lot of times people talk about being burnt at the stake. I even watched just recently, um, uh, Trevor Noah was talking about the burning people at the stake in Salem. This is actually a very common misconception. No one was actually burned at the stake in Salem. And it it can be forgiven because there were the great witch hunts in Europe where lots of people were burned at the stake. So people are kind of collapsing that. But nobody was burned at the stake in Salem. However, I do want to talk about the specter of burning at the stake and how it, it connects to this moment. Because this punishment did happen in colonial America, right? Didn't happen in Salem, but it was used in colonial America. Um, But in America, something kind of interesting happened. Um, In this context, it became almost exclusively racialized. As I mentioned before, in Europe, this was not the case, right? This was not the case. You're getting people being burnt at the stake um, for crimes like witchcraft. Um, But, and we'll be talking about that later on when we talk about um, uh, the the history of, of religious wars. But in colonial America, it becomes, um, this becomes a method of a racialized punishment. In 1681, a Boston jury indicted a woman named Maria of Arson, um, and she was, um, she was sentenced to be burned at the stake in in, public, in Boston Common. In fact, this was such a spectacle uh, that Cotton Mather, um, uh, his, fa- his father Increase, noted that Maria was actually the first person executed in this way in 1681. In fact, it was such a kind of horrific moment, right? this publicly burning someone at the stake, that Cotton Mather wrote, described her end in his book, Magnalia Christi Americana, as a picture of hell. And this becomes uh, a touch point. It becomes a way of, of also increasing the horror, right? Um, and, and, and enforcing this system of, um, of of enslavement that is so connected to warfare, right? This, this, this system started um, in, in light of these uh, as a war tactic. All right. And also, now that you have this background, I want to tell you another story. I started with a story about kind of how I came to this. Um, uh, this, this, uh, being interested in this. And I want to tell you a story that takes place a long time before. And that's a story of Schenectady. So Schenectady is a small town in um, upstate New York. And in the 17th century, the, the final decade of the 17th century, it was in the center of uh, a real kind of contest Um, Of control. And it was right in the middle of Haudenosaunee, remember we talked about um, territory, and that kind of trade route into French Canada. And this was something that um, the English at this point and the French were trying to make a claim on. And so on a cold and very snowy day, on Sunday, February 9th, 1690, this borderlands town of Schenectady was attacked. And it was attacked by a joint expeditionary force of um, Native and French fighters who were coming down from Canada. Now, by the end of the day, most of the inhabitants of Schenectady were slaughtered. Uh, 60 inhabitants lay dead. An additional 27 people were taken into captivity, while only two of the people who had attacked lost their lives. So this was really a rout, right? Um, This was a really dramatic and uh, tra- traumatic moment for uh, the, mo- for the um, community. Um, and it was one that really attacked and hurt the enslaved community uh, in, a, in a, an outsized way. Now, as you probably know a little bit about the history of slavery, as we've talked about, in the North, there weren't as many enslaved people as there were in the Southern and Caribbean colonies, but as a proportion of the population, um, a much higher proportion of of enslaved people were killed uh, than than others. Um, And this is kind of the first salvo in a a series of attacks. So we've got Schenectady in in 1690. And then you get these attacks kind of spreading out into the heart of Maine country um, from um, into Maine, and then you go to, uh, um, um, and, and, uh, in, into uh, all other sort of kind of towns. And these refugees would be coming out of places like Schenectady, like Casco. And they were traumatized, right? These are people who had seen their family, you know, killed in the most brutal way, burned in front of them. And they were coming into places like Salem Village, right? They're coming into places like Salem Village with this experience of trauma. And one, one historian, um, Mary Beth Norton, argues that this experience of trauma affected them. And in actually, if you look at the backgrounds of some of the Salem accusers, they're coming from these towns. Um, they're coming from this, this, at, this atmosphere of violence. And so in this section, when we're thinking about reading our documents, I want to think about How do these moments of trauma, right? Keep this in your mind. How do these moments of trauma affect the way that European colonists think about the peoples around them that are different, right? How does it change their perspective of differences? Well, I wanted to give you a little bit of an example before we think about this and work through our document together of one such person who struggled with this notion. And that is this man right here, the honorable judge, Samuel Siebel. And I don't know how honorable he was. The most famous thing he's known for is being one of the witchcraft judges, right? Um, Samuel Siebel was um, uh, involved heavily in the witchcraft crisis. One thing that is notable about him is that ultimately he is the only one who at the end says, wow. I really messed up. Like, I was totally wrong. And he made a public, public apology in front of his congregation saying, look, mea culpa, you're right, we just killed a whole bunch of people for nothing. But he's important to the, his, to the history of this moment. Um, also, he's important to the history of slavery because Samuel Sewell wrote uh, what is considered to be one of the first anti-slavery tracts, The Selling of Joseph, which you had to read a portion of today, um, and we're going to be talking about later on. But Samuel Seawall, like many other people, had seen accounts of this moment. And these accounts were really circulating, not just in the north, but you see some accounts going down as far as the Caribbean of this descri- description of the horror of Schenectady. And in some of the accounts, they're like, hey, look, you know, we could have like, attacked back if the, um, the watchmen hadn't been spied um, by some people because they were going out to look for runaways. So you can see that the presence of slavery changed right? the, the, what, what was possible in terms of defense, or at least in this rendering it did. But you see this not just in that kind of popular rendering. You also see it in Samuel Sewell's own kind of fears for his own communities. He writes about Schenectady. He s- spends a lot of time in his diary basically you know, in graphic detail talking about what happened to women, to children. And then literally the next sentence he starts to think about his own community in Barnstable. He's like, oh, you know, there was an attack close to where I live, and you, you can't, they couldn't find the bodies. And the fear is that they were murdered by a free Negro and Indians. And you can see here the juxtaposition of this fear, right, a fear of the other that is coming out of this moment of attack. And this is something I want to keep you, because when we're thinking about, a lot of times we think about these coming fully formed, right? People came and they had these ideas. And certainly they inherited ideas of difference, right, from their cultures and societies. But I really want to stress how these were created, right, out of moments as well, out of moments of warfare and out of moments of violence and fear as well. Okay. Now, another thing that is often associated with new england and you probably know this is the forest right the wilderness the northern woods. This idea, this notion, and it comes out of um, poetry. Uh, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow's uh, long-form poem, Ev- Evangeline, starts with, um, "This is the forest primeval." Right. This idea of the the forest, and of course, if you had to read, I did when I was younger. I don't know they make people still read this, um, the Scarlet Letter. Right. This uh, a vocation of the forest being somewhere where the black man, who is of course um, a, an, an allegory to the devil, but we'll talk about kind of why the terminology is used, was there to kind of come and, um, and, and take people's uh, spirits or souls. Um, well, I wanted to kind of draw attention to Henry w- Wadsworth Longfellow's ancestor and his diary. And he remembers, recalls, just four years after the Schenectady Massacre, that he's part of an expeditionary force that leaves from New England and is going to go to New York. Um, and he's not alone. Along with him are a few other important people from, from New England, including the people, person we just met a, few, a slide ago, Samuel Sewall, and they've decided to take this journey into a place that he records in his diary as a hideous, howling wilderness. And along the way, he meets a person that he doesn't think belongs there. He, quote, met a Negro coming from Albany, end quote. And there they determine him to be a very suspicious man, right? they're They're in the forest. They're meeting this person that they don't think Belongs there. This accosted traveler would say, Hey, look, no, 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 I'm not, I'm actually supposed to be here. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a soldier from the fort at Albany. But this group was not going to be deterred. They were like, Look, we decided we were going to tie him up and we were going to um, and, and make sure that he couldn't attack us. So they tie him up, and this person who had already told them that he was a soldier from the fort. Uh, was quite adept at getting out of their bonds and he was able to escape, right? And, and, and they wake up in the morning and he's gone. And so they're like, oh no, this person, we've, he's, he's gotten out of our, our hands. So they continue their journey on. And you can see this in his diary. He says, though we saw him no more, yet we thought of him. And later on, he continues to kind of discuss um, uh, this with, with other people he meets in Albany. And so I wanted to kind of End with this note, right? This idea of this fear and how this fear doesn't just affect people in 1690, right? It starts to continue on. And people are using their experiences of runaway, right? Of of, of trying to get people who are trying to self emancipate in order to inform this notion of fear and violence of the other in a place that is unfamiliar. All right. Well, I want to come back to Samuel Sewall, and now we're going to have a little bit of discussion for the document that we, uh, I had you all look at that I'm also going to project here today. Well, after all of this happened a decade after Schenectady, a um, short decade after um, the Salem Witch Trials, which of course happened after Schenectady, um, Samuel Sewell writes, The Selling of Joseph. And this, as I mentioned before, was one of the first anti-slavery tracts in the English colonies. Now here is what I had you all read for today's discussion. Um, And I'm gonna read it here for you uh, just uh, to kind of get the feel of what it sounds like. And then I'm gonna have you answer this question. What early ideas about racial difference can you see in this excerpt taken from Sewell's work? And he wrote the following. And all things considered, it would, be, it would conduce more to the welfare of the province to have white servants for a few term of years than to have slaves for life. This is his main argument, right? We always say, look for the argument. And here is the reasons he gives. Few can endure to hear of a Negro's being made free. And indeed, they can seldom use their freedom well. Yet their continual aspiring after their forbidden liberty renders them unwilling servants. And there is such a disparity in their conditions, color, and hair that they can never embody with us and grow up into orderly families to the peopling of the land, but still remain in our body politic as a kind of extravacid blood. Moreover, it is too well known what temptations masters are under to connive at the fornication of their slaves, lest they should be obliged to find them wives or pay them fines. Okay, so now as we've kind of thought about how people construct their arguments, I want you to use those resources that we use to look at historians and scholars' arguments to deconstruct what Sewell is thinking about, arguing about, and the different types of ideas about racial difference that you can see in this excerpt. So I want to just kind of go around the room and see what, she, what, what, what you thought about what Sewell is thinking. What are some things that jump out to you in terms of examples of racial difference that Sewell is using to make his argument that, hey, look, we should not have slavery here? Any ideas? Yes?
1: Well, it's interesting that he just sees them culturally as completely, like, irreconcilable, basically. He's already accepted that, uh, you know, African people are too different from us to coexist. And so he advocates going back, basically, to uh, indentured servitude, which is interesting.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's really interesting because he is, as you say, making a cultural argument, right? And this is an argument um, that... Obviously, you know, he has a lot of, of, of different reasons for it, but you're right, His, what he's advocating for going back to is this earlier state of indentured servitude, servant, servitude, having white servants for a term of years, which is an interesting perspective to think about when he's writing this, right, in, at the turn of the 18th century, what, how many white servants for a term of years are in the place that he's ta- where he's writing from, Boston. Any other thoughts about um, what ideas about racial difference can you see in this excerpt taken from Sewell? What are the things that he considers to be markers of difference um, in this excerpt? Yes? He
1: says in such a disparity in their conditions, color, and hair. So he's yeah. like basically describing, like, even down to like, physical characteristics, yeah. like, they're, I guess, like lesser than he sees um, white people as. Yeah, Yeah. this
0: is actually shocking, a shocking point. I'm so glad you pointed it out. The physical characteristics that he uses to kind of talk about difference. um, There's been a big argument in, you know, among scholars about this. When did people start thinking that skin color or, or physical characteristics made people different? Because before, what did we say it was, you know, that people thought was the most, was one of the determinants of difference. Do you remember? Not physical conditions. Though he does talk about conditions, but it really was a religious right religious difference was the main show and in fact, you see that in the laws of Virginia, right where there, you know the, the, the fact that people are non-Christian is really important, um, but you're starting to see the creep right um, into something that's kind of a more what we would consider to be kind of a more modern notion of difference which resides in the body, right this idea that um, that physical difference kind of, uh, that, that you can use science, right, to a certain extent, or a physical manipulation of the body in order to inherently determine difference. Now, you won't be surprised to know that people like Sewell, he wasn't just a judge. Um, he was also a lay scientist. And so they were also kind of involved in kind of trying to think about um, uh, these early, what is known as taxonomies of difference. Anything else people have thought about this? Yes
1: saying Like later on in that sentence that he says they uh, grow up into orderly families. Yes. Like he's he's going at their behavior and saying that they they can't grow up and be orderly members of society.
0: Yeah. I really like this point, and I'm so glad you pointed it out because this notion of orderly families is absolutely crucial, right, to Sewell's argument. He is making an argument about how society is run and how it's continued, and it is in. This notion of orderly families, right? Um, this idea of families, and he's saying that they can't, right? Ha- they, w- what would be the opposite? They'd have disorderly families, just like you said. I really like this this this, this um this point. Um, what I was
1: going to say is that I think even though this is an anti-slavery tract, there is there is a lot of juxtaposition within the document because he says, okay, well we're not. Fond of this type of slavery. However, there's still less than us. Yes. Um, so that's an important note. Like he said, we're not going to do this, but there's still less. So I think that continued the perpetuation of it within society um, and those attitudes that they
0: believed that the white race was superior. So huh. I think that is important to note. Yeah, I think this is such a good point as well. And this point, and I don't know if you could hear it, but I'm going to repeat it again. The, the point was that anti this might be an anti-slavery tract, right? But it's not it's not, you know, a, an equality tract, right? This is still something that would be predicated on the superiority, the assumed superiority of, as he, and, and he's also, one thing I think it's interesting to point out is he's saying white servants, right? He's not saying English servants, right? Um, he's making a racial, uh, a racial argument here. And I think this is a really important point, that this is central to his argument. He's saying, look, we shouldn't have slavery, but not because slavery um, makes humans unequal, but rather that it could destroy our community by bringing in undesirable people who are less than does that make sense and i think it's such a good point i'm so glad you raised it i think i saw one under hand all right well let's think about what are what what would happen after right we're here at the beginning of the 18th century right you're starting to see samuel siebel who's coming out of this history of fear coming out of this warfare he had been involved in the transatlantic slave trade now him writing this tract was very, very um, controversial. In fact, he didn't publish it in his regular publisher because he was a guy who liked to publish things. He actually distributed it, you know, secret, not secretly, but privately among some like-minded friends. So his ideas, while, you know, they weren't kind of founded on the notions of equality, they still were very, very controversial. So much so that he was actually... Dating a woman, he had he was a, um, an older man, and his and his um, his wife had died, and he was on on the dating scene again. And she found out that he held these ideas, and she dumped him. So this this was you know this was controversial what he's saying. Um, and Samuel Sewall, because he just he just he had to be in the mix, he became involved in something else that was happening at this time as well, and this. Um, this is a case, an early case, surrounding an enslaved man named Adam. Um, Now, Adam was a man who was enslaved uh, by um, another judge, another jurist, uh, a man who's actually um, also known as one of the earliest uh, examples of American poetry. And Adam was promised by judge, Judge Safin Um, that if he toiled on Saffin's farm in Bristol um, in in 1694, if he toiled for a few years, then Saffin would, you know, eventually give him his freedom. And so he's like, sure, I'll go out, I'm working. And so he kept waiting, he kept waiting, (laughs) he kept waiting, and Saffin's like, not giving him his freedom. So Adam's like, well, we had this agreement, so bye. So he decides to self-emancipate. Um he brought the, doc- the, the the documentation, always keep the receipts. He brought the documentation where Staffin had promised. Uh um and, and he sued Staffin for his freedom. He's like, okay, I've done the time, now give me my freedom. Now uh, Adam ultimately did win his freedom, but the the case was really hard fought. So Adam's case was heard several times. First, um, before um, Samuel, um, um, Samuel Sewell, then subsequently in a court that included Safin as judge. So you're kind of seeing there might've been a little bit of a conflict of interest there. Um, and um, Safin, being a jurist, was able to kind of jury intimidate. Um, so he kind of got a, a, a jury that was a little bit more favorable to him. Um, but Sewall was convinced by Adam's ad- evidence. He's like, look. You know, you have this agreement with this guy, and you have to stand by your agreement. And this was right around the time that he published this work that was anti-slavery. But the proceedings actually continued on for for many, many years, until um, 1703, the Superior Court in Massachusetts ruled in Adams' favor. Safin was not happy. Safin was really, really angry. And so, being gifted um, with words, he decides to publish the following diatribe against, um, see, well, in verse, and I'm gonna read it. Cowardly and cruel are those blacks innate, eight, prone to revenge imp- of inveterate hate. He that espies them soon, is, uh, sorry, he that exasperates them soon espies mischief and murder. In their eyes. Libidinous, deceitful, false, and rude, the spume issue of ingratitude. The premises considered, all may tell how near good Joseph they are parallel. So, one thing I think is interesting, and this is something that other historians have looked at. Historian Vernon jo- uh, uh, Jordan points to Saffron's answer as kind of the first. Um, kind of pro-slavery articulation. You start to see this in the 19th century um, in the wake of um, the sectional crisis. As we go closer, people are starting to kind of make kind of arguments why slavery is a good thing. But people have argued, um, Dr. Um, Jordan has argued, that this is actually the first articulation of that. But one thing I wanted to note, and the reason I read it out to you, even though it was kind of um, not the nicest thing a person could say, is to show how similar the two men think about the problem, right? They're on opposite sides of the argument, but they are kind of in agreement in terms of difference based on kind of racial characteristics. Does that make sense? All right. Now I wanna talk a little bit about this whole, kind of what would it look like in the 18th century, right? We've gone from the 17th century where we've got slavery in this very unexpected place, right? Um, The North. How do we get there? We talked about the consideration of indigenous warfare, how indigenous peoples were being traded for African peoples, and then how this is also happening in a, an environment of continual warfare and how these notions are being braided in to this borderland violence. But by the time of the 18th century, you're starting to see this conditions change a bit. And enslaved people are... St- being concentrated among the wealthiest families in New England. And, you know, these are names that you might've heard of, right? We talked about Sewell, but the Mathers, right? Um, The Winthrop's here, I I show this picture here, this uh, John Winthrop, as we talked about before, uh, if you remember um, the sermon, uh, the city on a hill, right? He's descended um, from, from him. Um, and Cornelius Waldo, if you've ever read Wal- uh, um, Ralph Waldo Emerson, was a slave merchant on a, on a large scale. So by the time of the 18th century, these people whose descendants, or, sorry, whose ancestors were kind of involved in thinking this up, they are already kind of in the swing of things. right? These are, are, are true people who are involved and embedded in the slave trade. In fact, Ralph Waldo Emerson's, ancestor, Cornelius, uh, Cornelius Waldo, um, had a slave ship that he named Africa that plied the Middle Passage packed with 200 uh, African people at the time. And this, you're using this tight packing method, you've probably seen the pictures of the slave ships that were became kind of prevalent during the mid-18th century of kind of bodies of people packed in those ships. That is the kind of method that was used. And in fact, some historians have argued that Northern slave traders actually preferred this packing method because it would lower costs. So the more people you can get into the boat, even though it's much more deadly for the human beings, then the more quote-unquote profit can be made on the market. Even more kind of dreadful about this is they were preferring younger captive people um, from, from the Caribbean. So they're looking for people um, who are young because of the of, of the mortality involved in this. I also want to show you the population growth here. In 1676, I right, already started at the beginning of this period, you get less than 200 people who are enslaved. By the 18th century, you have 550 people enslaved and by 1715, of course, right around Sicily's life, you have 2000 people enslaved. Now, these are growth numbers, but if you remember when I looked at the population number for, for Virginia, this is not, you know, it doesn't compare in terms of numbers. But in terms of percentage of the population, we have to look at where they're concentrated. All of these people basically are serving the wealthiest families. So they're concentrated in places like Boston, around the educational centers, right? By now, Harvard College um, was established in, the, in, in, the, in, in um, the colonies, so you've got people at the college, Um, And even though Massachusetts has this Puritan reputation, right? It was a theocracy. We talked about that. Many New England enslavers were really not interested in baptizing uh, their enslaved people. They were really reluctant to do so. And can anyone think of the reason they would be reluctant to do this? Yeah. uh, Yeah, right? There was still debate and worry that having a Christian person and then keeping them in, slave, in slavery was wrong, morally wrong, right? Um, this People start to kind of engage with these arguments and say, well, no, you can have a Christian slave. And in fact, one of those people was Cotton Mather. Remember, we encountered him, and we will encounter him again when we talk about the witch trials. Um, earlier, when he's saying, ha, those Jamaicans got what they deserved, right? You know? The, 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 the Port Royal earthquake was God's judgment. Well, he decided to wade into the foray of talking about anti-slavery as well. And in 1706, he publishes his tract, The Negro Christianized, which included a catechism for slave conversion. He was like, no, 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 there's no problem here. If we just basically convert people, then it's gonna be all right. In fact, six months after publishing this tract, The Negro Christianized. He was given uh, a a Coromante man who hailed from Africa's Gold Coast. He was literally given this as a gift by his congregants, right? So they're like, what does pastor need? "Ah, What do you get the pastor that that has everything? I know, an enslaved person. So they bring him, they present him, uh, this man, and he puts upon him, and it's literally in his diary like this, he puts upon him the name of Onesimus. Now, I don't know how kind of Um, How much people might know about the history, uh, the biblical history of this name, but does anyone have an idea of why Mather might have chosen the name Onesimus to give to this person who'd been presented to him as a gift? Well, I'll tell you. In the book of Philemon, um, uh, there was an enslaved man named Onesimus who had run away from his master. Now, the, the apostle Paul in the book actually admonishes Onesimus to return to his, um, master, um, because they're both Christians and they, and, and has been called to remain in service to his master. So this is why Mather's like, look, this guy is going to basically be, um, a case study, right? Um, for my brand of, of slaveholding. Um, and Onesimus, when we get back to talking about kind of the history of disease, he actually becomes crucial to some of Cotton Mather's lay experiments around um, vaccination, actually. Um, he, a smallpox epidemic hits um, the area, and Onesimus um, gives, some, gives Cotton Mather uh, and other enslaved uh, African people in the, in the area some ideas of how this was done in, in Africa. And, and, of course, it's a, it was a proto um, type of inoculation. People were so mad about this inoculation, they thought that enslaved people were telling him this, he was getting it from faulty, um, I, um, faulty people, and that these inoculations could kill them. They were so mad and so furious that Cotton Mather and his friend Zabdiel Boylston were doing this that they actually firebombed his house. They literally threw Molotov cocktails into his house. Um, I don't know if they were called that then, but that's what happened. So this is something, thinking about how this all intertwines is something I like to do and something we're gonna be doing together. But enslaved people did get baptized. They did get married in this context. And many of them use this as a moment to kind of assert their humanity. Like if, for example, um, historian Gloria Whiting talks about a case where an enslaved man, a father, and usually fathers weren't recognized officially in the record, he made sure to come to his child's um, christening and hold up the child in front of the congregation in order to basically show his relationship to this child. And these enslaved people, as I said, um, were in the places where the wealthiest people congregated, including Harvard uh, College at this point. It wasn't um, necessarily Harvard University, but also this became part of the founding of these universities. In fact, another historian named um, uh, Craig Wilder in his book, Ebony and Ivory, Slavery and the Troubled History of American University, talks about how this connection between elite people and the founding of universities um, were, were combined. For example, the Bowdoin Prize, which is a really prestigious fellowship given at Harvard as well as Maine's Bowdoin College, is actually named after Governor James Bowdoin, who purchased enslaved people. He was heavily involved in this trade. Um, in fact, during the mid uh, 17th century, um, uh, Thomas Hubbard, who is uh, um, the treasurer of Harvard, um, was involved in the slave trade. So now when you think about kind of modern day discussions of slavery in the university, we have our own here at um, uh, uh, South Carolina, this is all kind of going back to this historical moment, right? of of how do people engage with and, and create the type of situations we're gonna talk about. The chairs of, of many colleges and universities, like Yale, Rutgers, Columbia University, were actually established, right? When we establish a chair, if you're a professor and you have a chaired professorship, that means that some donor has invested your, this chair with money. And the first and the earliest chairs were invested by proceeds from slave slaving voyages. So this is where we get this community and connection. But now I've talked a lot about kind of what people at the top were doing, right, how they were determining people's lives. But I want to talk a little bit now about what the people who were enslaved were doing and how they um, reacted and resisted to this. Now resistance, which is another topic we'll be talking about today, among enslaved people in this took many forms. One, you get some enslaved people presenting themselves as unfit workers. Right, um, One woman enslaved to a Boston um, woman named Alita Vetch actually was counter negotiating at her sale her, um, her enslaver was like, Hey, I need to, to, to sell this person. She's great. She's going to be wonderful for you. And the woman, of course, because she's a person and she can talk was like, I'll be terrible. I'm always sick. You don't want me. Oh, that's too high a price. So this is the kind of thing that enslaved people would do in order to kind of counter and assert a certain amount of um, autonomy. Now you do see some people physically resisting, right? Attacking. Um, arson was something that was used um, across uh, New England and across, really, uh, the Atlantic world. And in fact, in September of 1745, a news story filtered in in the, in the, in the, the newspapers of the time of, uh, of, a, of a woman uh, who was killed by a blow to the head with a hatchet by the man that she enslaved. So this was a very dangerous endeavor, indeed. Some people you know, they left, right? They, 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 they fled. Sometimes they were going to places, right? Sometimes they were looking for permanent, um, permanent emancipation in sometimes with indigenous people or sometimes going to French Canada. Now, French Canada was certainly a very tricky uh, proposition. And why would they think they could go to French Canada? Any ideas? What could they have that the Canadians could possibly ever want? I think I heard something. Any ideas? What might these enslaved peoples have to trade in French Canada that the Canadians might want? Yes. Information, Information, right? You are there at the highest levels of, you know, the, the governmental and political um, rulers of the English colonies, and you know what they are planning. This was such a, a fear that in New York, in in upstate New York, uh, an enslaver named Robert Livingston, who was also part of the the legislature, actually helped to pass a law that prescribed death to any enslaved person who'd run away who was found 40 miles north of Albany, because they knew that that's where they were going. And in fact, um, his enslaved people did then later on escape, and they made it all the way to French Canada. They took refuge with the governor of Montreal, and you know They were passing information. This is what enslaved people had. They had information. And this becomes very important when we think about the run-up to the American Revolution and how um, enslaved people become part of the espionage network that is established in the colonies. So we're going to be thinking about that as well. Now, other enslaved people really aren't thinking about leaving forever. We actually think of people... We're going to run away to freedom, and freedom is a place, right, where people can never get you back into slavery. But most enslaved peoples, many enslaved peoples, in fact, were just trying to get some time off, right? They'd be trying to go back to their families, or they'd be hiding out with a local um, free black um, family just for a little bit so they could just get some time off. And others did want a more permanent solution, and they were going to life aboard merchant ships, right? We talked about enslaved people involved, who were involved in pirate ships, but many enslaved people had nautical knowledge, and they would use these ships and the fact that they were away for a long time in order to be ports of freedom. Um, I wanted to kind of think about, when we look at this last document, we're going to take some time at the end here of um, our our discussion to look and talk about this runaway uh, slave ad, but before we want to do that, I want to introduce you to the notion of what you can learn from these runaway slave debts. Now, we have talked a little bit about them before. This week, I had assigned you some readings that talked about them a little bit more. And I wanted to take you through the history of how we get there in order to talk a little bit about this. So Samuel Sewell's ministerial colleague, a man named William Wellstead, was a slave-owning friend. And he appeared frequently in his, uh, in his correspondence. On April 13th, 1747, Samuel Wellsted posted a runaway slave advertisement in a local newspaper. Now, this is a way that people in the community would be put on alert to look for these enslaved people. And if you see them, then send them back. And you see it for all sorts of things. There was one that I found that was so funny. This person had run away, and the slave advertisement said, I know that this person is teaching your children music but don't harbor, them, harbor him because I need him back. So, enslaved people were using their skills in order to negotiate um, their, their, the terms of their lives. And this, this um, advertisement by um, Reverend said uh, that was posted on the Boston Evening Post said the following, I'm gonna read it for you and then I'm gonna read through it and then I will do, have you all do the same thing with the advertisement I've given you to read here in class. And he says the following. A Negro fellow named Moses, 24 years of age, servant to the Reverend Mr. Wellstead, left his master's house last Friday evening. So it hasn't been that long, right? Look at the timing there. And is supposed to be concealed on board some vessel. He had on a blue coat and a leather jockey cap, but is suspected to have furnished himself with seamen's clothes. All masters of vessels and others are cautioned against carrying him off and if any person will give information where he may be found, they shall refi- receive five pounds old tenor reward. I want to point some things out and how to read these types of advertisements. One thing I think that's interesting is the Reverend, the good Reverend Wellstead talks about a Negro fellow named Moses. Does there anything sound peculiar about this? What would, what does his name tell you a little bit about? the circumstances of his enslavement, and also something that might be a little ironic in the reverend's choice of his name. Like led others to freedom? Right, okay. So he's, in, he's evoking this biblical character, Moses, who literally was a slave, who then led others to freedom, right? So obviously the reverend must have thought, well, this will be a, an interesting and ironic thing to name this person. I wonder when he posted this advertisement whether he thought that the irony was on him when he, like Pharaoh of old, was also pursuing Moses to the water's edge. So this kind of acknowledgement, and thinking about the ways that you can use these advertisements are something else. Now, the other thing I wanted to talk about is the things that he's wearing. So I want to say this again. He had on a blue coat, a leather jockey cap, and Siemens, but is suspected to, to furnish him semen's clothes. What can you learn, what do you think you can learn from looking at the things that, that he's wearing? He had on a blue coat, a leather jockey cap, but is suspected to have furnished himself with seaman's clothes. Yes.
1: I think we talked about earlier in the course how it was uh, odd for blue, or blue was like a very uncommon color, sort of like a wealthier color. Yeah. Um, and with the leather, I mean, he was probably trying to position himself as a more skilled laborer. Yes. Or put on a different appearance,
0: yeah. Yes, he's trying to, because a lot of times we see enslaved people they'll talk about Osnabrigs. So there'll, there'll be certain types of fabric enslaved people's used. Um, and so, yeah, you, you're starting to see him kind of um, uh, putting on a, a, a um, um, clothing that, um, that, that really denotes uh, wealth, right, and to a certain extent, um, a, a kind of a wealthier person. And it could just be that this man was kind of like... Um, um, was, was his valet or, or was doing something, um, like that. But yeah, you're absolutely right. But notice that else, that he's going to furnish himself with seaman's clothes. Yeah. Sounds like he's trying to get on a boat. Yes. Right. Not only is he going to get on the boat, but somehow he's ready with the costume. Like, where did he get these seaman's clothes? You know, how is he able to get them? You're absolutely right. Um, the fact that he's not just got the skills, but he's also dressed to kill, right? He's got the, he's got the, um, The the costume. Now with the end of class, um, in the last uh, few minutes here, we might um, have a little bit of time um, to look at this final advertisement. Now that I've done it with you and the Reverend Mr. Wellsaid, who was looking also for um, his Moses and following him to 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 the water's edge, I want you to do the same thing. And I want you to look at this advertisement that I gave you. And I want you to first identify and name the details about Dick, who is the person who is in the advertisement, that Robert Grace, his enslaver, includes pay specific no, um, uh, focus to the type of skills that Dick uh, um, is said to possess, and why that would be important. Why would it, why would it help somebody running away to have these skills? And then fine, finally, why would he mention these skills? Right? Why would Robert Grace, who's looking for this enslaved man, mention the skills that he mentions in the advertisement. So first, because we don't have the text of the advertisement, um, you have it um, before you, tell us a few of the details that Robert Grace includes about Dick in the advertisement. What are some of the... and you could just read it out if you feel comfortable. Yes. Um, he had on a brown coat lined with green, um, a shirt and troffer shoes and stockings. So it's kind of like what we saw last time. Like he has this nicer clothing on and he's trying to disguise himself as like a higher member of society. Yeah. So he's got, he's got this very detailed description of his fashion choices, right? Of what he's wearing. This is something you see a lot and runaway slave advertisements. This detailed description of the clothing that they're wearing. Why do you think there is that detailed? I'm gonna have that second thing. yeah.
1: those and bricks is what you mentioned before. That's kind of like that really rough-hewn fabric, exactly. right?
0: Exactly, and that fabric, oftentimes it would be a signal. Like if you saw someone walking around the street and they were wearing that fabric, that showed the class they were in and it showed that they were likely an enslaved person. So you do see a lot of enslaved people sometimes putting on layers, or having a change of clothes, or stealing right, their enslaver's clothes because they're expensive. And what can you do with clothes um, if, you, if you have a whole bunch of clothes on? Yeah. You can sell them, right? They, you see them using their clothing in order to continue their kind of life uh, on the run. All right, um, what are some skills that Dick possesses? What are some skills that he possesses? In the text of the advertisement. Any skills? Yeah.
1: The only thing I really noticed was the phrase preaching dick. Yes. So I'm imagining that he's at least um, well at speaking, but probably literate too.
0: Yes, right. This is a preacher. This is very, very kind of... Uh, this is a, a, a characteristic that Robert Grace thought was rare enough that he was like, this man... You find him, this is what he'll be doing. He likely had literary, literacy skills, right? He might have even been able to write, though he doesn't talk about that. But this man is using his religious ability, right, uh, as, or at least Robert Grace believes he might use it in order to continue to run away. Now I have this question that, that's a follow-up question here. Why would, why would he even mention? Why would, why would that be something? He's paid money, right? If you put an advertisement in a newspaper, you know, it's a spread. You see what it looks like. He's paid money for the printer to do this, and he has a certain amount of space. Why is he putting that he's a preaching? Like, why is he taking, I mean, not even just that. The words are slanted, right? This is something that he wants people to see. Why does he, why? Why would you do that? Why does he spend money on that? Why do you think that would help him? As you mentioned
1: earlier, you might be looking for work in that area so it's an easier way to identify him.
0: Yeah, right. You know, it it can help to even identify the people who might be thinking about, oh, I saw this guy and he was, you know, like you're saying, if he's looking for work or if he's like in in the area, that people who see this would be like, oh yeah, I remember a guy like that. Um, Like, he might be like a great speaker, so like people would recognize that, oh, like he like, speaks like better than the other slaves, so he might be a person. Yeah, I think this is a really, really important point, and I'm gonna say it again. The idea that he might be a better speaker, that he might have you know, the gift of gab to a certain extent, and that would say, you know, single, signal him as different. You do see this in other advertisements, where you see enslaved people who have some sort of, you know, they focus on the type of voice they have, whether it's you know, um, um, they speak with uh, an accent, or they are shy in some way, they will talk about this. I think I saw another hand. Yes, um, by mentioning that the enslaved person had skills, um, it kind of shows the people of the town that the owner really values them and like wants them back. So that might be a bigger incentive for the people of the town to return them because they know the owner will like pay up and like actually want the enslaved person back. Yes, this is really a, a, a very good point. I want to point this out again. Um, that this shows the skill shows this is a skilled person that is of value right and that this might also show that this that the, the, the that the um enslaver might want the person back right it's also if the person comes back that doesn't necessarily mean that the person the the enslaver would keep them but they're saving money right they know that if they've decided to then sell the person they say, well, this person's not bad. I've already told the community that this person is a, a, a valuable person. You know? So it is kind of doing double, uh, double duty. Well, okay, so I, I, I wanted to thank you all for taking the time to look through these documents. We've kind of gone from the beginning where we have a much more ad hoc um, moment of enslavement to the codification of the laws and then finally to looking at how it gets into popular culture, right? How it gets into the early newspaper culture. But now I wanted to leave a little bit of time um, for uh, the question and answer uh, and and open it up a little bit more um, to anything that you wanted to ask about this topic. Yes? Why do you
1: think
0: Northern slavery is kind of brushed over and not as talked about? I love this question. It is, why do you think Northern slavery is kind of brushed over and not talked about? Well, I think that narratives are power, powerful, right? Narratives are powerful. And it's something that people have always known, probably since the dawn of time, but certainly since these first kind of, um, uh, this first era that we're talking about. And this became the main kind of, Discussion right, right around the the debates about about as the sectional crisis started to come up. So obviously everyone knew that before the American Revolution. Obviously they knew that the northern colonies had slaves because they still did. Right, they didn't start emancipating people until uh, um, in a large way until after the American Revolution with Massachusetts, um, and then ultimately uh, later on with Delaware being the last. Right in 1860s. Um, But there became kind of a narrative that, you know, the southern colonies, right, the southern states at that point, were the place of slavery. And this narrative was about, you know, the sectional divide and keeping, right, the balance between slave and free. So you have slave states coming in, and then you have a free state coming in, you know, that whole territory dispute. Um, It started to become kind of shorthand to be like, the North is too free for slavery, right? And this actually harkens back to other discussions where there was even discussions that England itself was too free. Now, of course, this is an opening to to, to actually a fissure that that enslaved people during the time of the Somerset case used, right, in order to get freedom. And we're going to get there, I promise you. But, But to your actual point, yeah, I think that this was a narrative that started up in the 19th century in order to kind of basically make this case for a free north. But notice, we talked about Samuel Sewall's argument, right? His freedom wasn't about the north is too equal, okay? We can't have slavery because people have to all be equal. No, 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 no. His freedom was about we need to get rid of these different people and then have a society that is more kind of, um, that, that is only white, right? This idea of kind of making, um, a, st- a place, um, for, uh, um, um, segregation really, rather than, right, predicating it on any type of, um, um, any type of integration or community. Any other questions? Yes. Um, can you elaborate more on, like, kind of what you're talking about earlier about
1: how racial fears of the time kind of intersected with the
0: mass hysteria that led to the witch trials and the general paranoia of New England? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because this is not something that people think about being part of the narrative. I mean, people think about obviously the kind of fear of women, the fear of kind of this magic and what this comes from. But at the beginning of the witch trials, and we're going to talk a little bit more about the witch trials in a few weeks, um, well, before I tell the story, does anyone know... Kind of what, 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 what event supposedly kicked off the hysteria around the witchcraft? Anyone know anything from kind of like, if you've ever watched The Crucible or anything like that? Was it the um, enslaved
1: person, Tabitha? Yes,
0: exactly. Tituba, who was the enslaved, that's okay, that was very close. Tituba, who was enslaved to the Reverend Samuel Parrish, um, was... The first person who had she had, um, according to the, to the, to the accounts, um, had basically induced the girls to do these kinds of um, um, rituals that weren't fully, you know, um, um, Puritan, right? And so uh, for a long time, people thought or Tichuba was associated with uh, this Barbadian woman. We'll talk about this, like this, this woman that Samuel Parrish had brought back from Barbados, an African woman who then did this. Well, we know that that is not the case because the actual text of the trial says Tituba was an indigenous woman. And she was even married to a man who was known as, um, who literally has Indian in his name. I think his name was John Indian. And so they were both indigenous people. And that brings us to this kind of the combining of this. There were enslaved people of African descent um, who were pulled into the Salem witch trials. So yes, um, not only is it part of the narrative, they were brought before the community, Mary Black, brought before the community and, and you know, bound up in these, these um, trials. Interestingly enough though, they were not put to death. In fact, uh, Tichuba basically was like, yeah, I'm a witch. They threw her in prison and then she survived the trials. And that is actually a way that some people did survive the trials by just admitting, right? Sure, you're right. And, you know, don't kill me type of thing. And, and then they, they survived. But yeah, I think that in thinking about how this is a, a deeper history, that's not only—I mean, it, it is, of course, about gendered violence. It's about you know paranoia, fear, but also about the types of um, the types of things that people start to think about each other and how people were othering people is so so crucial. I hope that that um, that elaborated enough. Um, any other questions? Yes. We like- Seawall, like you mentioned earlier about like ordered families, would this be like the time that like the American like nuclear family would like start, like the idea would like start like springing up and like just like comparing it to like I guess like African societies and how they necessarily wouldn't be I guess like the same as like the American nuclear family? Yeah, I really like this question. I'm going to repeat it the idea that with Seawall talking about families, was this the time of kind of the notion of the American nuclear family? coming up, and also that um, that in contrast to African societies and how there was a kind of a different um, idea of family structure and that maybe this is what he's talking about in terms of them not. Is that, that kind of the gist of what you're you're asking? Um, well yes. <laughs> um, um, yes and no. So Seawall's coming from this kind of earlier notion of the family being uh, the basis for society. We talked a little bit about this earlier, but we're gonna get to it even more, Um, right? At the top of the, the kind of societal family is the father or the king, right? And then you are all his children or subjects, right? And so the family was really crucial to understanding society at the time, even more crucial than the way the family comes into kind of the idea of the nuclear family. This was like society writ small, right? The father was the king, and everyone else was their subjects. Even servants were considered part of the family. Sometimes people talk about the kitchen family, um, in a kind of um, uh, associative way, in a kind of formal way. So yes, this is what Sewell is talking about, right? That the family, The society as family, he's saying they can't kind of get these other people who are so different being put in. I think it's such an interesting point that also to juxtapose that from how he might be a a, a little nervous about how different... Uh, culturally, right? This, uh, the different notions of family would be, and what that might do to the society. I, I think that's a great, a great idea. And maybe you can choose that for um, to, to explore that in, in the the final paper. I think it's really, really interesting. Yes. Uh,
1: I thought the article on Samuel Maverick was really interesting, actually, and the amount of like speculative history that had to be done about it because it was one little source, and then she had to use contextual sources to sort of piece together a story. Um, why do you think that? There are zero personal papers that have survived. Do you think it's a case where they're maybe being held onto by a family or ended up in some box lost there? But she was like, there are no first-hand sources from this family, even though they were wealthy... Large plantation owning family.
0: Yeah. So um, this is a question about um, the uh, the the article that we we, we looked at um, that was assigned for today. Um, the cause of her grief, the rape of a woman by um, by Wendy Warren. And the in the article the um, the there is these uh, papers. And she talks about there's no real papers that really attest to what happens during this case, that she's kind of painstakingly um, reconstructed out of silences, out of fragments, and how to do that. Um, so the first kind of point was about the speculative nature of that and the reason that we don't have these documents. I would like to bring up again the Salem Witch trial as example, right? So many of the documents that we have were donated by families, right? And, and, and I went to um, the uh, Massachusetts Historical Society once and they gave me a story about how literally members of some of the families that were involved in the witch trials, later generations, like in 19th century, they were so ashamed of their family being associated with that they would come and they would sit by the big roaring fireplace and they would go through the papers that looked bad and they would just throw them in, (laughs) throw them in. So there was some, there's some willful destruction and construction of family histories here, right? People don't wanna be known as, you know, the people who killed a bunch of innocent people, right? Um, But at the same time, The survival of papers can be difficult as well, just from the passage of time, Uh, but also what people think is important, right? Um... Um, people might not have thought this is really that important a paper to, to remember. I do a lot of work in the Livingston family papers, which are huge. Right? Um, they really are enormous. Um, and, but, but you see a lot of survival of the, their um, account books. And sometimes they'll have some correspondences and then they'll just disappear. And you're like, I want to know what happened. But of course they weren't interested in what happened. They were interested in keeping the, the account books, right? um they don't they they didn't care that you wanted to know what was going on with this and that person's life right so it's all about like what people thought was important to save as well and i think some of it is just time right just the passage of time we have been losing a lot of of documents just from and of the elements. Um, One of the main repositories I went to, the New York uh, um, State Archives had a fire in 1911 that burned the majority of the collections. And in fact, the Van Rensselaer family who who had kept their papers for two centuries and were like, you know, maybe the archives and the library would be a safer place. Like it was like a week before or very, very soon before they were like, here, take good care of our papers and then the archive burned out, right? And um, the papers survived because they were protected by the English document papers, but they were burned terribly. So I think you know, we have to take all of that into account in terms of how we get these um, papers. Any other questions? I see another hand in there. Um, how successful
1: do you think these ads were at uh, capturing the slaves, like the runaway slaves? I Because like, they sound ads. kind of convincing. Like, I mean, that doesn't sound like that great, but they're so descriptive of the slaves, I feel like it, it would be pretty successful. Yeah.
0: How successful is, were these ads is the question um, uh, For in, in terms of tracking people down. Um, I. The only way you can find out is generally kind of trying to follow the trail and see what happened to people in the end. Um, and I've done that for a few. There was one really interesting ad of two men who ran away together. One deserted um, after, I believe it was King William's War, um, up in Maine. And he deserted with an enslaved man, and they both ran together. Um, and they were, they were um, actually caught in Charleston, South Carolina. Okay, this is, I've driven um, to New England recently, and the drive itself is an epic journey. So imagining these two people in the 17th century, I'm sorry, 18th century running together is really compelling. But yeah, they were caught again. And you do sometimes see them, people taking out ads saying, yeah, I caught this this person. And that also shows you The reach of these papers, right? They're they're actually you'll see also they'll run these ads several times. Um, So and sometimes I follow ads that it's been years and they're like still looking, still looking. So they were fairly successful. It was big business. Um, You see um, publishers like like um, Benjamin Franklin later on, who was also a Boston native. Um, though he was publishing in Philadelphia. You see them making a lot of money. This is the way they make their money, right? Advertisements. And obviously, this isn't the only advertisements in the newspapers. But yeah, they're pretty effective. People are willing to shell out the, the bucks to, uh, to, 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 to put them in there. Any other questions? Yeah
1: converted feel about the relationship
0: between like their religiosity and their status? Yeah, this is a really, really good question. The question is how did enslaved people who converted to Christianity feel about the relationship between um, their Christian, you know, um, identity and their status as enslaved people? Um, We don't have many documents written firsthand by enslaved people, though we do have some. Um, In fact, one of the earliest poets um, in the American American canon, uh, were actually two people. One was a woman named Phyllis Wheatley, who was enslaved um in um uh, Boston, and another was a man named Jupiter Hammond, who was enslaved on Long Island. And um people have read their poems, and some people were disturbed by them saying, Well, I'm just glad that that I had the opportunity to, to learn about Christ and be Christian. But other people have read their poems and said, They're actually They'll say this, and then on the next line, they'll say, but can you believe the people you know, who, who would be willing to do this? So I think there was a little bit of kind of signifying going on, right? This idea of using the language of Christianity in order to protest right, the, the continued enslavement. And so that's the only way we would kind of get to know. Uh, but you do see people like Preaching Dick and other people using um, their skills, um, using that ability, um, in order to get to freedom. So I do think there was, um, uh, and also you see it in cases, court cases where enslaved people are saying, look, you know, um, we're going to use this as a basis for freedom as well. And, and equality, not just, you know, um, not just to be freed from slavery. All right. Let me look at, well, we're getting close to the end. I thank you all so much for your, for your attention. And for coming today. Um, And if you have any other questions, of course, you can always ask me, and I'll see you all uh, uh, soon. And if anyone needs to sign in, I have the sign in sheet as well that I can kind of start over here. Does anyone need to sign in? All right, we've got a few. I'm going to go around this way so I don't get the glare in my face. (laughs) Thanks for listening to C SPAN's Lectures in History podcast. If you're interested in hearing more history, check out season two of the Presidential Recordings podcast. The second season focuses on taped conversations between President Richard Nixon on topics ranging from the Watergate scandal to his nominees for the Supreme Court. The Presidential Recordings Podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts.